Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message, and God bless. This morning we're going to continue our series, uh, our Easter series, entitled, Who Do You Say I Am? We've looked at, so far, uh, uh, the disciples, when Jesus asked them that very pointed question, Who Do You Say I Am? And the response of Peter, uh, we have also looked at... um, the response of the blind man, Bartimaeus, and his friend uh, when Jesus came through and asked uh, them very specifically what he could do for them. Uh, and today we're going to look at someone that doesn't get a whole lot of attention uh, at Easter. Uh, we're going to look at someone whose name isn't even mentioned, and there's only one verse about them in the Bible. And that's Claudia the wife of Pilate. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. We're going to begin with verse 15. That's Matthew chapter 27, begin with verse 15. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release the crowd of prisoners they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ. For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Have you ever had a dream that so impacted you that when you woke up, you still felt either fear or worry, you know, maybe anger or bitterness. You know, uh, those of you who are married, uh, have you ever had a dream about your spouse that when you woke up it caused you to be angry at him the next day, right? Uh, the, something that you did in the dream. Tim Hawkins tells a joke about um, his wife having a dream and getting mad at him and saying that, uh, you know, uh, he, she was being chased by a bear and he wouldn't save her. Uh, And she said that's exactly something that he would do is that if she was being chased by a bear, he would not save her. And so she was bad at him because of this dream. And it elicited such an emotional response. um, And the dream was so vivid and so real that it caused her when she woke up to actually have a negative reaction to him. And I know that I have definitely had those dreams. I've called Kelly up and said, Kelly, do you know what you did to me last night in this dream? Uh, Right? I've had other dreams about my boys where I've woke up in worry and fear and doubt. I've had dreams where I know it was just my imagination, right? Uh, As it said in the, the, uh, you know, to uh, to Scrooge, where it said that you're just some, you know, cheese, you know, a bit of cheese, right? Something you ate before you went to bed, something, you know, crazy dream like that. And then I've also had dreams that I know meant something, that when I awoke, Uh, I knew that God was trying to speak to me and to warn me of something. But the fact is, is that dreams are very powerful. And we've all had those occasions in our life where we've had a dream 
that affected us in an emotional way that in the morning when we awoke, we simply could not shake it. That it made us angry or fearful or maybe even joyful, whatever the case may be. It elicited a reaction even after we woke up. I am a, um, a restless sleeper. In fact, as long as I can remember, I have sleptwalked. Uh, and I have crazy sleepwalking dreams. My little brother Charlie could tell the story one time where he awoke and I was standing over him in his bed with the sheet pulled up over my head like a hood and a cape. And I just was standing there staring him at him. I only remember this because he said, Curtis, what are you doing? And that woke me up. And I was so embarrassed and ashamed I didn't know what to do. So I just slowly backed out of the room and went and got back in my bed, right? Uh, I have this habit of reoccurring nightmare of spiders chasing me. And so when Kelly was out of town the last time and I was having to sleep in the bed by myself, uh, I literally fell out of bed and got stuck between the nightstand and the bed and just tore my neck all to pieces trying to escape these spiders, right? Vivid, crazy dreams that I've had, and I still have them, uh, these, these crazy nightmares, and, and, and there have been times when I will have them night after night after night, not wanting to go to sleep because I was afraid I was going to dream again, yeah. you know, uh, and, and, and they would impact me when I woke in the morning, afraid and fearful, and you're sweaty, and you're scared, and you're worried, and this is what happened to Pilate's wife, but she had some dream, though we do not know what the dream consisted of. She had some dream that impacted her so much that she decided there was something she had to do about it. This one solitary verse, Matthew chapter 27, verse 19, about Pontius Pilate's wife. There's nothing more ever mentioned in all of the Bible about her. There's no real consensus on who she was, what she did after this moment in history. There's no consensus on how she lived her life, what she did. Uh, historians have no idea because there's no real historical record of what took place in her life after this, uh, as we described in Matthew 27, occurred. We know her name. Uh, we believe her name to be Claudia because historians have called her many different things. They've called her Claudia Procula, Claudia uh, Procles, Claudia uh, uh, Saint, Claudia. Um, and so for the purposes of our message, based on historians and uh, the early church, we're going to call her Claudia. And so who, she, who was she? What happened in her dream? What was the source of her dream? What did she do from it? How did she suffer? What did Claudia end up believing about Jesus? Who did she think Jesus was? The truth is, no one really knows. But what we do know is this, is that she had a dream that so impacted her that she was willing to interrupt her husband while he was on official government business. Something that should never have been done. So let's set the scene here. Romans were known to be very superstitious people. And to them, dreams meant something to the group of people as a culture. In fact, if you'll remember when Paul went to Athens, the Apostle Paul, you'll remember they had all of these altars built to all of these gods. And just to be saved, they had built an altar to the unknown God, right? Because they wanted to cover all their bases. 
And that's how the society was at this time, is that the Romans were not exclusive, they were inclusive to all these other gods because they didn't want to make a mistake and miss one. And so they even had, as we saw with the Apostle Paul, they even had an altar to a god that they simply called the unknown god, just in case. So they were very superstitious, or superstitious. they covered their bases, they wanted to make sure they didn't miss anything. So in the midst of all of this is when Claudia has this dream. And so when she awakes, she believes that this dream meant something. Something so strong that she had to act upon it. And at this time, Pilate and Claudia had a good life. Right? Uh, he was the governor in this area. They had a comfort, uh, comfortable standard of living. They were wealthy. They were very popular uh, socially, and they were socially high up in the Roman government. They were financially secure. They had a great political clout and status. But here's the problem. Pilate had a horrible reputation. He was a bloodthirsty, and he was cruel, and he showed little mercy and little weakness. He was on the very teetering edge of that last straw that broke the camel's back where everything would be stripped away from him because of his rule and because of his bloodthirsty nature, because of his cutthroat attitude uh, where he ruled. He caused the Jews to rebel a couple of times and caused riots and rebellion. And so he had been given strict orders from Tiberius, the Caesar at this time, the emperor of uh, Rome, that, listen, buddy, if you don't get these people into shape, I'm taking everything away from you. You're going to be exiled. You're no longer going to have your power, your prestige. I'm going to put somebody else in charge because you can't seem to control these people. What you're doing isn't working, is what Caesar was saying. What you're doing is not working. And so Pilate was put on notice. If another rebellion happens, if more cr uh, craziness occurs, I'm holding you personally responsible and I'm going to replace you. So here he is. He's in Jerusalem where he came only when there were feasts because there were lots of Jews who congregated together. Most of the time he was away from Jerusalem with his wife. But they came home during this time so that they could uh, be in the city, Pilate could be there as the Jews came in to celebrate. This specific time was Passover. And there were thousands of Jewish people there to celebrate Passover. And it just so happens that here on the teetering of, of, of being the, given this mandate by the emperor, by Caesar, uh, now not only is it Passover, but this man named Jesus, who I'm sure you had to have been living under a rock not to heard of him, he is now coming to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with an escort of thousands, saying Hosanna to him. Coming in as the king of the Jews. Thousands of people. He, he could not be ignored, right? So he's got this undercurrent that's beginning to brew at the worst possible time where this Jewish man is being followed by thousands of people 
into Jerusalem at the Passover during one of their most important feasts. And he was on notice that if anything went wrong, he was in trouble. He was going to lose everything. Him and Claudia would lose everything that they had worked for, everything that they had earned. And so that is where we find ourselves, is that Jesus has come into the city. Passover has been celebrated. Judas has betrayed Jesus. And Jesus has been brought before the um, Jewish leaders, the high priest Caiaphas. He's been brought before uh, and tried, I put that in quotation marks, because he was not given a fair trial, which we'll talk about more in a minute. He was tried. Uh, in fact, when he was, after his religious trial, he was brought to Pilate for an official government trial because Jews could not carry out capital punishment, which is what they wanted. They wanted him to be killed because of his blasphemy against God. And so, therefore, they had to bring him to Pilate because Pilate was the only one that could uh, prove capital punishment. So he had to go to a trial before Pilate. And Pilate, not finding any guilt in him and not knowing exactly what to do, he sent him away uh, to have another trial with Herod. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Herod couldn't find anything and sent Jesus back to him. And Pilate's doing everything he can to keep his hands clean. He doesn't want to be involved in this mess because he knows that in his heart, he knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, what we read today says that uh, he knew that they had only brought Jesus before him because of envy, because of jealousy. So their case that they made before Pilate, he was able to see through all of the false witnesses and all of the false testimony and all of these things. He was able to see that the root at the heart of why the Pharisees were bringing, uh, the Jewish leaders were bringing Jesus to him was simply because of jealousy. So he wanted to let Jesus go. Now, did he care about Jesus' rights? Probably not. Let's be honest. Jesus was just another Jew to him, no matter what the rumors he had heard, no matter what had approached his ears. But he knew that Jesus was not a threat to him politically, even though that uh, they you know, said that they were saying Hosanna to him. He knew he didn't believe that Jesus was a threat to the Roman government or a threat to Caesar. And so he was just going to let him go. Have him beaten and let him go. But the Jewish leaders wanted nothing of it. And so here, where we find ourselves in Matthew 27, as that Pilate is finally, he's trying his last bit effort to politically resolve this without causing a riot. Without having that riot happen that would cause him to lose his position of authority and power. And that's where we come in Matthew 27, verse 19, where Claudia, his wife, it says, as Pilate was sitting on the judge's bench, he, she sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Pilate was sitting upon the judge's bench. He was right in the middle of the remaining moments of this trial, to bring, finally bring a verdict and judgment. This was official Roman business, and it would have taken uh, the, quite the dream to cause his wife to interrupt official government business. 
She knew the tightrope that was being walked. She knew what her husband was facing. She knew what was at risk if there was a riot. They would lose everything. I'm sure Pilate talked to her at home about this troublemaker and about, you know, these Jews that simply would not leave him alone. And he, you know, schemed and plotted on how he was going to handle this without there being some kind of riot and also protecting Jesus or at least getting it out of his hands so he's not the one that made the decision. It was some other guy that made the decision. None of that was working out. And I know that he had probably talked to his wife and said these things are happening. I don't know what I'm going to do because if they riot, honey, our standard of living is going to go way down. We're going to lose everything. Yet in the midst of all of this, knowing how much the Jewish leaders were crying out for Christ to be crucified, they had ripped themselves whipped themselves up into a frenzy and the crowd into a frenzy and they were hollering for him to be crucified and it had gone beyond the Jewish leaders but the Jewish leaders had somehow got the crowds to shout crucify him and they were on the verge of a riot I mean that's how bad the situation had gotten they weren't peacefully protesting they were on the verge of riding outside the judgment seat here. As Pilate was listening, the crowd was screaming and crucifying. They're on the verge of a riot, the very thing that Pilate could not afford to allow to happen. And it was over Jesus and the fact that they wanted him dead. And in the midst of this scenario is where you see his wife do something unprecedented, interrupt him in front of everybody in front of the other officials, interrupt him in front of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, embarrass him by saying, what? Have nothing to do with this righteous man. Because I had a dream, and it will not leave me alone. It's tormenting me. She risked the riot. She risked the craziness and her position, knowing full well what the Jews wanted. She risked it all because of a dream to tell Pilate have nothing to do with this righteous man. John MacArthur writes, it was surely not her practice to interrupt her husband when he was in the midst of a trial, especially one so sensitive as this. To be sitting on the judgment seat was to be acting in the official capacity of judge, and not even a governor's wife would have dare intrude on such proceedings except in a serious crisis. She knew what Pilate's original verdict had been, but was afraid that the Jewish leaders would coerce him into changing his mind. Now when Claudia has this dream and she goes before uh, Pilate, the truth is we don't know what happened after that. We don't know how the dream impacted her. We don't know what the dream was. There are early middle age, well, middle age historians and theologians that believe that she actually accepted Christ and began to became a follower. In fact, and then in, in, in an Ethiopian church, she was named a saint as a result. But then there are others who believe that she did not and that she, um, you know, nothing's really ever heard from her, that she really never followed Christ. 
And so this dream was barely had her afraid to the point that she wanted to make sure that her husband knew that he should leave him alone. But it never impacted her on a level that she actually did anything other than warn him. Matthew 27, 19b says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. This trial was a sham. That word righteous there could be translated good man. A man who hasn't done anything deserving of what they're asking for. A man who is not deserving of this death penalty, who doesn't deserve to even be on trial. Uh, she says this is a good man. And this trial that Jesus had experienced was a mockery. It was a sham. The religious portion of the trial was absolutely a debacle. They took him in the middle of the night, and trials were never to happen overnight. A religious trial was always to happen within the temple. And there had to be specific people present for the testimony. What happened when the night was Jesus was betrayed and he was uh, brought in uh, and captured what happened that night when he was arrested by the temple guard is that instead of being brought to the temple, he was actually brought to Caiaphas' house first, which automatically broke protocol. So it was at night which broke the law, and it wasn't at the temple which broke the law. So he was tried at Caiaphas' house. When all that got worked out, then they brought him. And the Bible says that then they issued their verdict in the morning. So to cover themselves... For having an illegal trial at night in an illegal place, they, elicit, they, they produced an illegal verdict in the morning to cover the fact that they had done these other things illegally, that the trial actually should have never counted in the first place. So they were doing everything in secret, in the dark, because they knew what they were doing was wrong. So the trial that the Jews did, that it was, that the religious leaders did, that the Pharisees did, was a sham. And everyone knew it was a sham. They broke, one, one author said that they broke at least 18 specific laws governing cases like the circumstances of Jesus' trial. 18 laws, at least, were broken. And Pilate, because he knew that Jesus did not deserve to die, he knew that Jesus was a good man. He knew that he hadn't done anything worthy of being killed wanted to distance himself as much as possible away from it. He had heard the complaints. He didn't really care and didn't believe that Jesus was going to pose any kind of threat. And so he tries to acquit Jesus over and over again. Throughout the Gospels, he tries to let Jesus go. He had Jesus whipped and said, let me let him go. I find no fault in him. When that didn't work, he sent him out to have him tried again by somebody else. That didn't work for him. And now here his last straw was to say to them, I can either release Jesus, which is our custom at Passover, to release a prisoner to you, or I can release Barabbas, who was a known murderer and criminal and thief. I can release this guy, who was definitely worthy of capital punishment, or I can release this guy, who's only guilty of you being jealous of him. And he thought, I believe, 
that they would choose Jesus over Barabbas. I mean, who would choose a murderer over somebody who heals the sick and causes the blind to see and raises the dead? I mean, who in their right mind would choose a murderer who takes life over someone who gives life, saves life, protects life, over someone who teaches the way that he taught? Over the, uh, it just doesn't make sense logically, does it? So Pilate's thinking, this is my last-ditch effort to keep the riot from happening. I'll give them a choice. Surely they will not choose Barabbas over Jesus. It just logically makes no sense. I've punished him. I've beat him. I've knocked him down a peg or two, right? Uh, so let, let's let him go. But the crowd was in such a frenzy because of the Pharisees. In fact, one person wrote that they were just venomous, that the leadership of the Pharisees were just like venom, venomous snakes, infecting everyone with their poison. It's like what John the Baptist called them, a brood of vipers, you hypocrites, infecting everyone with their poison so that they had whipped them up in a frenzy that they were willing to call for the release of a murderer over Jesus. The one they had just worshipped, the one they had just declared king, the one that they had written, seen written on a donkey was saying Hosanna in the highest, and, you know, all of these things. They were worshipping and honoring him so much so, they were worshipping him so much so that the Pharisees said, hey, stop them from worshipping you. And Jesus said, if they don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. I mean, these are the same people that were now crying for him to be crucified and asking for Barabbas to be released instead of Christ. So the minute that they said, release Barabbas, he was basically out of options. These Jews were not going anywhere, and there was no way he was getting out of releasing Jesus easily. In fact, in John chapter 19, verse 12, it says that the Pharisees said to him, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Well, what did we learn at the beginning? He was already white, teetering on the edge of being, you know, uh, sacked, fired, removed from office and power and losing everything. And now the Pharisees, they knew what they were doing. They said, if you release this guy, he's a threat to Caesar because he says that he's king and there's no king over Caesar. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe that for a second. They hated the Roman government. They were no friends of Caesar. They didn't like the, what they considered to be the tyranny of the Roman government government over them. They were waiting for a king greater than Caesar, right? They were waiting on the Messiah to come and overthrow the, the oppression that they were experiencing. And so the, the statement reeks of hypocrisy. They didn't. When they said only Caesar is king, they were only using it as a political tool to say, we have now tied your hands. Because Pilate knew that if it got back to his superiors, that he had released somebody who claimed to be king over Caesar, which is what they were threatening, his job was gone, and maybe even his life, who knows? He could have been the one that was forfeit, life was forfeit, because if they got back to them that he was releasing someone who claimed to be king over Caesar, that's treason. So they literally bound his hands and gave him no choice. Lose everything? And set him free or convict him. 
And as we know, what he did was he tried desperately to even at the end say he had nothing to do with it. And even as Claudia had sent him this message that said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've been tormented in a dream. He had strived throughout this whole process to have nothing to do with this righteous man, to wash his hands clean. And because he valued his life and prestige more than he did doing what was right and he knew was right, he decided that he would distance himself as much as he possibly could by bringing out a basin of water, washing his hands in the water, and saying, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. Let his blood be on your head. Now, in his way, he wasn't issuing a verdict. But he was issuing a verdict. No answer meant he was giving an answer. No answer meaning he was declaring Christ guilty and he was handing him over to be punished for a crime that he did not commit. He, Pilate chose the comfort of his life, his social status. He was not willing to sacrifice that in order to do what was right and release Christ, let him go free. He, sac he was not willing to make that sacrifice. And so he thinks that he clears his own conscience by washing his hands. And the Jews are, they're all too excited to shout, let his blood be on us and our kids, which they didn't know what they were asking for when they did that. They said, they shouted out, fine then, let his blood be on us. Let his blood be on our children. Meaning we'll take responsibility for this murder. We'll be the ones that can be held accountable. And as we look at this story today and we look at our lives, we all have that point where we have to decide, are we willing to give up what's comfortable to do what is right. Wow. Are we willing to acknowledge Christ as Savior and God in spite of the impact it might have on us socially and uh, upon us, even on our jobs, economically? See, we're in, in this country, we're lucky. We don't face some of the hard decisions that people in other countries who are killed for their faith, murdered, they are persecuted, they are beaten, they are starved. They're willing to give it all up for Christ because he is who he says he was. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who gave his life willingly. God who became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, who gave up his life and was raised again so that you and I can be reconciled with God and have eternal life with him. But to acknowledge that takes a risk. Mm -hmm. Now the risk isn't as great for us, and that is just the truth. Mm -hmm. The most that you and I risk right now as a society is losing a friend or two. Having a family member maybe be judgmental towards us. The risk that you and I take would be giving up something that we enjoy doing, as in the case of Pilate, giving up, uh, giving up his money or his wealth or his home 
or his position of power. We don't want to give up that activity, that habit, that thing that brings us pleasure if we declare who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. Because once we declare that he's the Son of God, and we declare that he's Lord, and that he, that immediately makes him master. And when he becomes master, he takes control. Amen. Otherwise, were we being rebellious towards the master? Amen. Once you call him God, he becomes master. And when he becomes master, we are now subject to him. And then we have to follow what he says is right and what he says is wrong. Right. Yes. To do anything less is rebellion. And when our eyes are open and we see the truth as what it is, that we have to leave behind what it is that brought us peace and comfort that was in rebellion to Christ. We have to set it free. We have to let it go. We have to walk away from it. And we don't want to. We want the comfort of those things brought. The joy that even temporary as it was that those things brought. We like to be wrapped in our anger and our bitterness. Mm -hmm. For it brings joy. Or not joy, but it brings comfort. Mm -hmm. Right? It keeps us warm and fuzzy. Mm. Even though we're miserable and hurting and angry, that angriness becomes a security blanket that keeps the outside world out. And honestly, underneath that blanket, we become self-righteous. It's self-centered. And we don't want to give that up. Because when we acknowledge Christ as Lord, that has to be cast aside. And casting that aside means admitting I was wrong. And for some people, admitting that you're wrong or admitting that, I, that, that they are wrong is the hardest thing they could ever possibly do. Their self-confidence and their self-esteem is that low that to admit that they made a mistake or that they could have been wrong is a huge undertaking to say they're sorry. And especially if you spent years building up that rap, wrapper of self-righteousness and laying on blanket after blanket of, of, of self-righteousness and righteous vengeance and you know justifying your anger and your bitterness and all of these things. You convince yourself that you are right and all the world is wrong. When you meet Jesus and he says to you and he goes right to the bottom of your heart, right to the center of your heart and says to you what you're doing is wrong and you are bound. But I can set you free. But to set you free means to admit that you are wrong. To confess and ask for forgiveness is to admit that you are wrong. wrap ourselves up in those things we don't want to admit that we made a mistake we want to blame everybody else mm -hmm. and not give that up and I don't know why I went that direction but I felt it very strongly we want to blame and we don't want to make him master because it would mean admitting that we're wrong and some even go so far as to even that we're raised in church and know the truth about God, and they know that he's real. They've allowed themselves to become so bitter and so angry and so frustrated that they've even decided that they're either atheists or agnostics, that maybe God doesn't even exist, or if he does, he doesn't care about us. Mm. People that knew. But because they sheltered themselves in their own self-righteousness and are unwilling to give it up, They just become more and more angry 
and bitter. And they really are living their lives like zombies. Walking around, daily routine, no, nothing but pain and hurt. Dull to all the good things. Dull to all the things that really bring everlasting joy. Focused only on today and what today can give them. Focused only on what they can fill themselves with to bring some modicum of relief and peace at the moment. But if they would just admit and see that when Christ pricks their heart and they would recognize who he is and acknowledge him as master and as Lord and as Savior, it could be set free. All of that can be forgiven. But it takes making a brave decision, a sacrificial decision, to say I was wrong. It was a would have been a huge sacrifice for Pilate to say, I'm letting him go anyways. He would have lost everything. The Jews would have rioted. There would have been another rebellion. He would have lost everything. What are you and I holding on to that's keeping us from doing what we know we're supposed to do, which is to submit ourselves under Christ, to make him master? Amen. What is it that we are holding on to that's keeping us from living our lives when we know that he is Lord? That's the question for each of us today. And it is not a question that we can run from. It is not a question we can ignore. Because no answer is an answer. Wow. Let us stand. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.